1: Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Joe Person, Chief Financial Officer of Wolf Home Products, specializing in sourcing and distribution of building materials for home construction and renovation projects. Joe, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Laura. Um, really appreciate you having me on and looking forward to the conversation.
1: Me too, because you and I have had a conversation uh, not too long ago, and as we were talking about some of the stories that you had to share, you're not the average CFO insofar as you know. You didn't go to just get your MBA and then have the entry job and then move up the chain. You had a lot of interesting zigzags along the way, so I can't wait to get to some of that meat. But before we get to that, tell us about Wolf. Tell us about your company and what's your thirty second elevator pitch?
2: Sure. Wolf is uh, we're based in Central PA and. The company has been around 180 plus years, which is incredible when you think about it. Wow. Yes. It's a long time and we have great people. But essentially what we do is we are a one-stop shop provider of what we like to call home products. And home products are those signature pieces that go into the rooms of your house that you're spending the most time creating memories with family and friends. So first off, that would be your kitchen. Mm. We have a wide array and expansive offering of kitchen cabinets, that can help you build out that dream kitchen. Yes. The second piece would be this outdoor living area that has been so much on trend over the past few years as people are spending more time in their homes. Wolf has a large offering of decking, trim, railing, and siding that help you customize what we call the staycation area Yes. that folks are, are really enjoying around pools, hardscapes, those type of things. So a lot of exciting things going on at the company we're operating in over 40 plus states and we'll continue to expand that offering with Prime Source Brands recent acquisition of the company in 2021.
1: You know, you're speaking my language. One of these days my kitchen's going to get redone. I can't wait. Love to host, love to do all that kind of stuff and you know, I don't care if my bedroom ever gets done, but my kitchen is <laughs> is definitely first on the list. It needs to get to the top of the to-do list, but it's it's on it. It's near. So I can't wait. Now, what's your favorite part of your job and why? Working with Wolf as chief financial officer, what what do you love?
2: So the chief financial role is ever evolving, no day is the same. Obviously a big component of my job is presenting the numbers, accurate and timely financial reporting. But what I love the most is really peeling back the onion, understanding the drivers behind the business, the problem-solving aspect and then the strategy creation aspect of the role.
1: Nice. So what's something that's going on? I mean, a company that's been around 180 years, most have been around 180 weeks. You've done 180 years. So What's something that, looking ahead, is up and coming on the horizon? And how have you had to adjust your messaging to different stakeholder groups about it?
2: I think everyone knows that the housing market is, has been on fire recently. We specialize in a lot of products for repair and model. So there's been tremendous amount of growth there. And with growth comes acquisition opportunities. So there's been so many mergers and acquisitions within the industry, including ourselves, who were recently acquired. So the challenge, I think, from that perspective is that you have these established relationships, these established customer relationships, whether it be vendor relationships or, for our perspective, ownership relationships, Sure. that you have to really reinvest your time in and understanding who the new stakeholders are and then what's important to them.
1: And what is important to them when you think about it? What, how does it differ from what was important to other groups, other stakeholders? And how does that change the way that you talk to them?
2: Sure. I'll give you an example. Great. So... We've had multiple different ownerships. I've had multiple different ownerships groups that I've worked for. So you'll spend two or three years building a data pipeline to that ownership group. You have everything running smoothly. I have everything running smoothly. And then, you know, a couple of years later I get acquired or the company gets acquired. And we have to then reestablish those data pipelines and then those reporting packages that as I as a CFO have to provide. So it's a changing environment and you know, we have to continue to adapt in that environment.
1: So in doing all of this, what's something that you're really good at communication-wise and what's something that you're still working on, something you'd like to be better at?
2: Sure, Laura. Like, like you said in the intro, I try to be a little bit different than most CFOs. I'm very outgoing. I'm very inquisitive. I like to talk. If you haven't noticed in the podcast, one of our coworkers <laughs> says, I like the wax poetic about the building materials. <laughs> but, you know, so that's, I, I like that and I use that in the skill set when I'm reporting data, when I'm understanding the story behind the numbers. Something that I think is a downside of that, but my weakness would be just listening better. Mm. It's been obviously a challenging time for many folks in any different industry. And, you know, my natural instinct is to be able to help where I can, but sometimes the best way to help is is to listen. So a little plug for my wife, as she says, (laughs) you know, just continue working on listening. I'm going to to continue to do that. I think it's uh, beneficial for everyone.
1: I think that's a universal challenge is just when you you know your stuff, you're excited about your content, you want to share your knowledge, you want to help other people, and we just like to talk. I am certainly look at, I host a podcast, so obviously I'm part of that club to say the least, but remembering to back off and just let the other person do more of the talking is something that I'll join you on that challenge train, so to speak. Now, who are some of your role models from a communication standpoint?
2: Sure. So you mentioned um, I had a military background. So I'm going to have to go military on this one, Laura. Okay. There's somebody that out there, I encourage everyone to to Google. His name is Brad Snyder. Hmm. He has a book called Fire in My Eyes. And Brad, just a quick summary on what Brad did and why he's so impressive as an inspirational speaker, but also a communicator. Brad was the swim team captain of the United States Naval Academy. He lived on my floor. I was a year behind him. He went on to serve as an explosive ordnance disposal officer in Afghanistan. And in 2011, he was injured by a roadside bomb. Oh, my gosh. And he lost his vision. It's an incredible story. So he lost his vision. And one year from the date of his accident, the incident, he won gold at the Paralympics in England. Oh, wow. So when he tells the story, and I've had him speak before, he does commercials as a public speaker for a lot of large corporate events. He's able to not only inspire with his message, and I think he's focused on looking forward not necessarily focused on what happened to him or what's behind him. Sure. So he can inspire people that are going through a tough time. But what I, when you study him as he speaks, he understands the audience that he's speaking to and he can't mm. see. It. And he understands how to tailor his message without the ability to actually see them. And I think that's so impressive. So anyone get a chance to take a look at Brad Snyder's message, you'll be inspired.
1: That's amazing. And terrifying. At the same time, the idea of just in the split second or in the blink of an eye, as it were, all of a sudden you to lose your sight and have to adjust and then to win the Paralympics.
2: What was his event? He was swimming, but now I think he recently just completed the triathlon. Oh my God! So he's, he's constantly evolving himself and just an incredible person. Without
1: the and ability to uh, see doing the triathlon, I don't think I could complete any of those even being able to see right Maybe it's better off if you can't see how far off the finish line is. <laughs> it's like, okay, there's...
2: No, exactly. So he has somebody run with him.
1: I he's would certainly hope
2: partner. so. <laughs> yeah. And it's, so they they build a partnership and a friendship along the way. You saw any commercials for the Olympics. I'm sure Brad was in some of them. I know he was in the, the most recent one uh, a few years back, but... uh Incredible story.
1: Now you referenced it here, and I, I alluded to it, but I didn't mention it here in in our interview yet. That part of your what makes your background unique is that you are you did come through the military. Give us a quick background on that. What was what branch were you in, and what were you doing?
2: Sure. Like I said, I, I went to the Naval Academy for my undergraduate degree. So, at which point, when you graduate from the Naval Academy, you have to serve over five years in the military. So, I and then within that military service, you can pick. You know whether it's Marine Corps or become a pilot or whatever. I chose naval intelligence, so my experience in naval intelligence is actually pretty similar to what I'm doing now. Just totally different stakeholders. I was analyzing complex data sets and then delivering strategic recommendations to the military leaders. Very similar, different topics, different environment. I worked in a classified environment. Now, you know, nothing's too classified in what we do. It's not that fun, but very similar process. So that's what I try to do try to leverage the experience I've had in the military to then parlay that into the corporate world where I think some of those values and skill sets, learned experiences can be applied easily to that setting as well. Yeah,
1: no doubt. And to be specific, you were a SEAL team operator, weren't you?
2: I was not a Navy SEAL, but I was an intelligence officer that supported a Navy SEAL. Got it. Some of the SEALs, if they're listening, they would get mad if I claimed. Got it. it. Let's be specific. But no, no. Another credible group of people, tremendous communicators as well. So it's, that was a great experience in working with those folks. We're in good hands with the Navy Seals at our side here in the US. Yes,
1: well and thank you to all of the service members out there, current and uh, veterans and those of you out there who are considering joining one of the branches, uh, you know, thank you to all of you for your current and future service. Now, in looking at your shift from that military background to corporate America, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. And I'd be curious to know what some of the bigger culture shocks were of making that initial transition into leadership roles in corporate America, as opposed to the military, and how you had to learn to adjust your communication accordingly.
2: Sure. I'll give an example. When I first got out of the military, I went into my boss's office, and I was about to request permission to come aboard, which is standard protocol when you're in the military and you're, you're talking to a commanding officer. So obviously I couldn't do that. Uh, I think that my boss would have thought I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> but when i was crazy, but what I try to break it down and think about it, right, the whole concept behind that is, is being prepared when you're going into a senior person's office. Um, and so now I, I think about that. I still offer that same level of respect and courtesy, but I'm obviously not going to provide some of those military acronyms that might, might you know, freak somebody out <laughs> in the corporate setting. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned and applied from the military in the corporate setting. But the key is, I think, for a lot of vets that are transitioning, is, is just making sure you're relatable. Take your skill set and put it in a format that somebody in the outside corporate world can actually understand. And that's hard because you spent a life and a career in the military, where a lot there is a lot of acronyms and there's a lot of the world that maybe people won't understand. So I encourage people in that setting or in any setting in a transition. To actually just try to think about your experience and then put them in a relatable message to your coworkers so that you can relate well to them and, and build relationships with them.
1: I think every industry has its alphabet soup, its acronyms of choice, and yeah. to relearn when one acronym means one thing in one world but means something else in another, and just learning how to translate for a totally different audience I mean you, you came military into business I'm a quote-unquote recovering academic so yeah. you know trying to learn how after a decade or so of having all of that, you to professor speak and only writing in a certain way for journals and whatnot, beaten into my head and then transitioning into this world and then having to spend just as much time having it beaten out of my head. It's can be frustrating, but I'm almost looking over my shoulder for the citation police to say, you didn't put a footnote. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I remember those days, the citation police, they're, they're real. It's, it's a challenge in the academic setting.
1: Sure. And I would assume it's similar in the going from military into business. Then you don't ask quote unquote permission to come aboard or just permission to enter somebody's office you just walk in because you're supposed to feeling like, am I going to get in trouble for not having asked permission first? Am I overstepping my bounds? Am I Absolutely. you know, being disrespectful to my superior officer or whoever it is? Absolutely. But I
2: think, you know, so what I took from that transition too, from the military, to the corporate world, I learned from that. You know, I obviously made some mistakes. You know, it's probably used acronyms, where I should have scared people off. But then fast forward, you know, three or four ye- years later, you know, transitioning to a CFO role with no experience prior to that. And I kind of took the No lesson.
1: experience of what kind?
2: No CFO experience. And I took a CFO okay. of a private held- So celebrity. it was your first that was year. was my first experience. So that can be daunting for many, but, you know, having that backbone or that framework of transitioning out of the military into the corporate world, that's an experience that I leveraged and, you know, it helped me build the confidence I needed to then, you know, maybe make a reach and stretch into a brand new CFO role of a private equity-owned business.
1: Yes. And I imagine that took a lot of confidence, a little steal your gut and pick that leap of faith. But it looks like it has been a reasonably smooth transition at least. So you're still there, which is a good thing. Still there,
2: seven years and running. It's been a lot of fun, learned a lot along the way. Love it. But yeah, it's been great.
1: So this brings us to our 24-hour listener influence challenge, Joe. So this is your challenge to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete in 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today?
2: Sure. I'm going to go back to where I think I have the largest weakness in just listening. Mm. I think we spend so much time in communication, uh, working on presentations or messages, deliveries. Let's challenge everyone to take a listening exercise. So if you're with a colleague or a friend and you're sharing sort of war stories, so to speak, about your work, right when you're about to interject to help them, just take an extra 30-second pause. Let them continue to talk. And I think if you could, the exercise there is to provide mindfulness in listening more in discussions rather than cutting off and interjecting where you think you can help.
1: You know, I appreciate the fact that you gave a specific parameter, like try 30 seconds, not just five or 10, not just wait and let them finish, you know, the phrase that was coming out without cutting them off. Make yourself count like 30 seconds. On the one hand, it goes by really fast, but at the same time, when you're waiting to interject, you realize it can feel like an eternity in some ways, but it also is more than enough time to have a conversation with yourself. Right. Like, okay, am I really listening? Perhaps yes. I need to not worry so much about jumping in. Do I really need to interject this one piece? Could I send them a message afterwards? Let me be present. Am I fully present? And you have this whole internal monologue going on that I think would be really valuable for more of us to have more often.
2: Absolutely. And I, I think the 30 seconds is perfect too, because in this day of technology, if you go 30 you know, a minute or two, people will think you're texting or checking email not paying attention. So it's just that perfect window. And like I said, the end goal is to provide more mindfulness in this ever evolving world with your employees, friends or whatever it may be, to just be a better listener in the overall scheme of things.
1: Yes. Okay. Everybody out there, there's your answer (laughs) or your challenge, as it were. Listen, listen, listen a little bit more. Okay. So... In doing all this. Now we've talked about the successes in your transition from military to corporate world, taking your first CFO job, etc. I'm guessing there were a, it was a little bit of a learning curve along the way though. So, what's one example of a mistake that you made along the way? And if you could have a do-over, what would it have sounded like?
2: Sure, I'll give you an example. So, coming from the military background, like I said, you have a lot of preparation in anything that you do, if you're presenting to a commanding officer, you're going to know your material and you're probably going I'm going to you know, understand exactly what I'm going to be speaking on, probably rehearsed it a little bit. You know, I think that I took that skill set and I did it in our first board meeting, my first board meeting as CFO. And I had all this material, so excited. I'm talking. And then I realized I just kind of went so fast through the material and we still had an hour left or an hour and a half left to go for (laughs) the presentation. And I think, you know, the effort was there, the preparation was there, but perhaps maybe it, didn't take enough time to really engage the audience. And I just kind Mm. of cruise through it. So I think that's a mistake that um, is probably common when presenting in public forums. But Now I tell myself to just breathe, right? When you're giving Mm. a presentation and allow, you want it to be more conversational rather than rehearsed. So that's a do-over that I wish I had, but it's perfect for me because I can learn from that. And I needed that experience to get more comfortable in that board level setting in the CFO role.
1: So in attempt, and I think this is something that people know they should do is to engage the audience, not just open mouth, turn on fire hose and drown everybody in information as it were. But if you could go back and have that conversation again, the notion of engaging the audience, what would you have done? What would you have said? What would that have looked like?
2: Yeah. So what I do now and learning from that experience, if I'm presenting materials and typically, I know we're all used to the PowerPoint slide decks, which unfortunately is still the way of the world in the finance realm. But when I go through a slide, I talk at a high level, and then I look, I make eye contact with the key constituents, and I ask them, do you have any questions on this slide? Mm. So that covers me in the sense that I want the people to be engaged. And a lot of times, it, then it starts a conversation, which is obviously the goal, that you want to have a dialogue with all the folks in the room. And then when that happens, I might cover three slides without actually talking to the slide itself, because it's, it's occurring in the conversation in a very fluid manner.
1: Yes. Yes. Even that just, I like the way you reference. just pause and check, do the temperature check is that you know, what questions are there? And I find that sometimes the difference between framing it as a yes or no question versus framing that temperature check as a, one of those WH more open questions. So as opposed to, are there any questions versus what questions are there? Right. Just giving that assumption that there's probably something in here I could have been clear on. There's probably something you want to know more about, Tell me what that is so I can make sure that you're getting it uh, just because there are those people who, if you ask yes or no, will go into their heads and they'll have their own internal monologue going, well, should I ask, is this the right time? I don't know if I should tell them. Do I want to announce to everybody else that I've got a question? And then by the time they're done having that conversation, the moments passed, You took the silence to mean there's no questions and you moved on and they kind of lost the the window So I would encourage people out there to try just adjusting that temperature check and assume the answer is yes. Right. And then ask them what they want to know more about. So uh, everybody give us a, if you have a chance to try that, reach out and let us know how it goes and what kind of a difference that it makes.
2: That's great advice. and I'm certainly going to incorporate that into my next presentation.
1: And it's something I actually learned teaching when I was both at the university and teaching even in my much, much longer ago world of teaching public school, because kids will do the same thing that adults do. They'll they'll ask themselves, do I want to admit that I have a question? Do I actually have a question? What question would it be? How do I frame it? I'm not really sure. I'm still trying to process. And if you ask them yes or no, usually the answer is, I don't know if I want to admit that I have a question. I don't want to be the only one. I think that's really the biggest thing. I don't want to be the only one who's got a question, will I look stupid? And we sort of bring our inner seventh grader with us to a lot of these meetings subconsciously.
2: I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think you you touched on too. And there's, I mean, there are textbooks out there on how to deliver your message, but everybody's different too. And everybody's unique. So I look at every opportunity that I'm speaking or if I'm presenting, you're never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. But I'm going to try to learn from that. So incorporating any type of you know guidance like you're providing into each and every one of your presentations, the repetition of that will eventually help you build, help me build that confidence that I need when going into you know a tougher audience, right? And I think that's important. So if I'm if the advice I'd offer to, to folks that are just getting that experience is repetition is your best friend. So don't be afraid to make a mistake. Go ahead out there, give a presentation, see what works best, see what doesn't work, and then build from that. And over time, you're going to be a much more confident presenter. And that's what I've tried to incorporate in, in my role as CFO. Wolf. at
1: No, that's awesome. And in doing so, I would imagine that besides just straight up presentations, there's a lot of different difficult conversations that you've had to have Absolutely. with different people at different times. What's an example of a time when you had to share bad news or at least initiate a difficult conversation? How did you do it?
2: I think uh, you know a lot of folks can relate to this right now in this inflationary environment. I am having to have conversations with customers about price increases, and Mm. it's it's never a fun experience. What I try to do in those discussions is be very clear and succinct. I think a lot of times people, when they're having challenging conversations, try to dance around what the actual end goal here is or end state, and that creates. Further consternation down the road. So I'm trying to be very, very clear and concise. This price increase is X and then allow for the customer to have, for the constituent to have a feedback moment. But I also want to be empathetic in those discussions. No one likes a price increase. I want to be empathetic. I want to explain to them why that price increase is coming. In this case, obviously, it's inflation with raw materials, labor, et cetera. And then I want to provide a little bit of a decompression time for the folks to provide feedback. And then, you know, most likely there could be a follow-on call. But I think all those key components of the discussion are important when having challenging conversations. I hope to avoid them in, in the future, but I'm sure, I'll, like anyone, will be in, involved in difficult conversations over the course of my career.
1: You look, I don't know anybody who doesn't have them on perhaps a daily basis. There's yeah. especially when there are price increases or there are, you know, supply chain challenges or something along those lines. That's kind of the nature of the world right now. It's it's not a question of if so much as when and what, perhaps. So that's something that you have to get good at.
2: Absolutely. And like it's another thing that the more experience you get, uh, the better you get at that. But if you build your brand to being a person of integrity, um, you're going to tell the truth, you're going to be a hard worker, that type of thing. I think that goes over well, goes over better with whoever that constituent is that you talk to because they know you're presenting them a fair and accurate look of whatever that conversation may be.
1: Yes. Yes. But it's the consistency. It's the reliability. You know, when you, I'm glad you mentioned the branding, you know, a colleague of mine in marketing defines your brand of any brand as the promise of an experience, and the experience of a promise delivered.
2: That's a great way of putting
1: it. It's so pithy. It's so, I wish you could take credit for it, but I can't. So, but (laughs) but that idea, I'll say it again. It's your brand is the promise of an experience and the experience of a promise delivered. So if you promise good or bad, I'm going to be straight with you. I will be empathetic with you. I will help you through it. I will deal with whatever. We're not going to, pussyfoot around it. We're not going to avoid it. We're just going to work through it and we'll make sure you have the best experience possible. I get that it's not something either one of us likes to discuss, but no matter what, I'll be open and upfront with you. And then you deliver on that so people can trust that when necessary, that's what they're going to get. That's a heck of a brand to establish.
2: It absolutely is. And I, and I think when you talk to people about their own career development, you'll hear a lot about, you know, resume building and bullets on a, on a resume. But when you think about your own personal brand, the best way to build that is to be reliable, be a hard worker. So then you're building a reference base, of a network of people that understand that you're a strong leader, you're reliable, you're a hard worker. And that's, that's way stronger than any bullet on a resume. So I think you know, when you think about creating value for others and being that reliable player, that's what's going to help you build out your career and give you more opportunities in your own career. It's just doing the job that you have to you the best of your ability, being honest, being a person of integrity. And from there, you're gonna have a tremendous amount of upside and opportunities throughout your career.
1: Now, how does all of that translate to the virtual world? Because a lot of people feel like, well, when I'm in person, I'm able to give this experience, I can connect with the audience this way versus that way. And if only we were in person, I'd be able to give that to you. But here in the virtual world, we're just going to have to click the join meeting button and whatever happens, happens. How have you and your team overall improved your virtual presence and your virtual influence over the past year? And what's something that would help you be even more successful moving forward?
2: Yeah, sure. Initially, I was talking about the different stakeholders within the company. So like I said, now we have a new ownership team. And that's headquartered in Dallas, Texas. I'm getting to know and build partnerships and relationships with those folks. So we're going to spend a lot of time on screen in those virtual discussions on Zoom or Teams. Sure, That's important to that relationship building because we don't have the chance to travel as frequently as we need to to build those relationships in person. Now, on the flip side, when I'm dealing with my accounting team that I deal with routinely, I see multiple times a week. When we have to jump on a Zoom call, we're going to be extremely efficient. They don't necessarily need to see my ugly mug on a screen, and nor do they want to you know, be available for a screen. And that's not as important to us because we have an established relationship. We have an established way of doing business together. So on that call, we're going to be extremely efficient. We're going to maximize time. We're going to try to incorporate as many key topics as we can into one call, as opposed to bogging down calendars with multiple calls. That's how we differentiate our virtual presence between the different stakeholders.
1: And what's something that would help you to be even better, more more efficient or more effective or connect better with audiences moving forward? A, a virtual skill you'd like to get better at?
2: Yeah. So the virtual skill that I like to get better at, I think that what I see is, is a little bit of like Zoom fatigue, I'd call it, or mm, sure. in our case, Teams. So yep. where people are just bogging down people's calendars with meetings, I think I encourage people to be more efficient with those meetings. Like I said, try to bucket. A bunch of topics into one one hour mm. topic because everyone's so um, challenged in today's labor environment that we want to make sure that we're as efficient as possible in working through this competitive landscape. So that's what I would encourage people to do: is just be more efficient and kind of bucket topics together, so you you don't come in and you're, you're seeing a calendar full of seven Zoom invites that can become fatiguing for your coworkers and your employees.
1: Sure, I like the idea of trying to look at okay, what are all the topics that the same group of people are talking about, you know, just at different times of the day, can we consolidate that and have one slightly larger, slightly longer meeting, perhaps if necessary, as opposed to meeting that many more times, which just eats up the calendar in one bite at a time.
2: Exactly. That's the feedback that I've gotten from my team. And they're enjoying that because it's like right now we're in month end close, ah. And if I put seven calendar invites on their Outlook calendar, they might come in and beat me up.
1: <laughs> well, we don't want that. I mean, you were military, so you can probably take care of yourself. I'm going to give the benefit yeah. of the doubt on that, but still. I don't know.
2: Those accounts are tough. They, uh, I, I
1: fear them. Nice. That's, I think that's not something I have heard phrased in quite that way before, but that, that's great. Though. My account definitely tough in, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully, she'll never try to beat me up. But now, what about succession planning? When you think about in a company that's been around for 180 years, there's been not just a lot of new hires externally, but a lot of people coming up through the ranks over the years. So what's something that could otherwise disqualify an internal candidate from taking a leadership role, even if they're the most technically qualified for the job?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'll speak specifically to the financing and accounting roles, because that's the world that I live in. Sure. But When I see the difference between an accountant or an analyst and the CFO role, I think you need to be able to tell the story of the numbers. So a lot of accountants will have a really strong expertise in the numbers and the journal entries and all the things that go into accounting. The next level of leadership, I think you have to kind of reach outside your comfort zone and learn the numbers, the narrative behind the numbers, and then help to create strategies to help the business grow. So what I personally did, and I encourage other folks to do, was once I kind of had that reporting framework established with monthly financials, I started you know, setting calendar invites with our sales team, spent some time with our sales team, our customers, then our vendors, right? And then from there, that's outside my comfort zone, outside the normal day-to-day tasks of my CFO role. But in doing that over years, through repetition, I really have a nice data pipeline with all the different stakeholders within the company. So you can invest that time and just in working with other parts of the company that you may not work with on a daily basis. That's what I'd encourage you know, your accountants, your finance folks to do in order to make that next step in leadership in, in a CFO role.
1: And that's really advice that anybody, you can be in IT, you can be in human resources, you can be in sales. Everybody's got numbers. Everybody has stats and facts and figures they need to share with different groups. Being able to tell the story and not just assume that the numbers speak for themselves as far as the so what is concerned. How do these numbers apply to me? Okay, you're in finance, I'm in sales or I'm in IT. You're showing numbers to me, but how do they impact my day-to-day or how are they going to impact my budget down the line, or how are they going to impact the number of people I can bring on board to increase my team or what I'm going to need to look for. So the, so what, how does it, I think everybody tunes into the same radio station, which is WIFM, Yeah. right? What's in it for me. (laughs) So being able to translate that regardless is, is a really key skill.
2: That's exactly right. So I, you know, when I talk about that, you know, an accountant would go, I'm reporting on the month end financials and accountant would say sales were X right? What I want to do is I sales were X because of this and they're trending high in this region, but down in this region because of these you know, few reasons. So that would be the differentiator to kind of reference what I'm talking about in that message.
1: Yes. Yes. Perfect example. Thank you for sharing that. Lastly, Joe, if you were asking to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates regardless of whether they're going to go to college, to the military, or anywhere else, regardless of major or career goals, what's the one thing they have to do to be successful?
2: I think there has to be a fundamental belief in yourself. I've talked a lot about confidence and repetition. When you have your career goals or your personal life goals, you have to fundamentally believe in yourself. And I think that's important. And then you back that up with hard work and effort. And then like I've encouraged people to do on this call is also step outside your comfort zone, right? Take a role that maybe you might be a stretch for. And really, we won't regret it in the end. And then the last piece, I think what you need to do in in all of those different elements is just have, continue to maintain your personal integrity. That's so important in the business world. When you bundle all four of those things together, you're really cooking with gas. And I think you've got great opportunities ahead of you for your future career.
1: That's beautiful. I love it. Love it. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people learn more about you and Wolf Home Products?
2: Sure. uh, Check us out at www.wolfhomeproducts.com and www.primesourcebp.com.
1: This is terrific. And if they want to learn more about you, where can they find you?
2: me a note on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn or Facebook, whatever I can be of assistance. So I'm happy to reach out and help anybody in any way.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: And thank you to everybody else out there for listening, for tuning in as always. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And don't forget to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more. If you're looking for that, please go to speaking toinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Socola and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite.